0: Father Richard Malloy is a Jesuit priest and he tells a story of a coming boat race between his community of Jesuit priests and some nearby Franciscans. He says that for some reason, his team of Jesuits could not figure out how to get their boat pointed in the right direction, let alone moving at any pace. He says that even when they try to get into the boats, most of the time they capsize it. And so they finally determine that they need a little bit of help with this, and so they send one of their most youthful members to go spy on the Franciscans. This youthful member goes, spies, comes back, and indeed has the solution, comes back and excitedly says, we're doing it all wrong. The Franciscans have it figured out. And so the fathers all ask this young man, okay, what do we do? And the young man says, they're all over there, and eight of them are paddling, and only one of them is yelling. <laughs> early in my relationship with my wife, we loved going down the river. We would go out uh, down the Nuasis or the Frio outside of Uvalde. And in the early parts of our relationship, we would often take a canoe. And I would sit in the back of that canoe and she would sit up front and we'd have our nice cooler of snacks and beverages between the two of us and we would spend the next serene several hours yelling at each other about who was paddling right and who was paddling wrong and which direction should this boat be facing in the first place. Keeping a boat straight is not an easy thing to do if the people on the boat don't all realize that they're in The same boat. My wife and I did finally learn to enjoy those kayak trips down the river, and the reason is this. We got kayaks instead of a canoe. (laughs) So this is the context of the scripture this morning. This story comes in a section of Matthew's gospel in which several different groups are waving their paddles around and yelling about who's in charge and which way this boat should be going. This chapter contains Pharisees, it contains Sadducees, lawyers, and scribes, and each of them have the right idea of which way their collective boat should go. Even though we do give each of these different people groups a bad rap when we read the scriptures, something that we need to be aware of is that each of them is actually doing exactly what they're called to do the pharisees the sadducées the scribes and the lawyers are all trying to help their un- their people understand what it is to live a life of faith what it is to live within their community what it is to love and to serve their god and they're doing it in the way that they know best and so in this chapter these different groups bring these different challenges to jesus they're trying to see how jesus is aligning himself The way that he's steering. They do want to know that he's steering the right way, and they will let everybody else on the boat know that Jesus is doing it wrong if he is. But this is where we start with these discussions. And so the Pharisees first come to Jesus, and they ask whether or not, according to the law, according to Torah, it's appropriate to pay taxes to Caesar. And Jesus skillfully answers this question and his challengers walk away. And what's interesting is that Matthew says that they're amazed by his answer at this point. They're not angry. And then the Sadducees ask a question. Their question is trying to point out the absurdity of the idea of resurrection. And Jesus again answers skillfully and the challengers once again walk away astonished. And then this leads to the third question. A lawyer sent by those Pharisees again comes and asks, what is the most important commandment? Before we get to Jesus' response here, I want us to notice a little something about these challenges. Again, these are discussions. These are discussions between Jesus and these various people, and they're just discussions at this point. These groups don't agree with each other. They're all part of different factions, and they all have different ideas of what it is to live faithfully. But at this point in the gospel, it's just a discussion. We do know that violence will come, but this is not the moment of that violence. In this chapter, the people that challenge Jesus walk away amazed. In this chapter, they all still realize that they're in the same boat. A couple of weeks ago, I went to an event called the Know Your Neighbor Lunch. Sounds like it comes straight from Leviticus, right? The speaker at this lunch was a pastor named Ben McBride. And I highly recommend you find this guy's book and read it, or look him up on YouTube and watch him speak because he's amazing. Reverend McBride asked us all to recognize that we're in the same boat. He asked us to take difficult steps to actually get to to know the people around us, especially those that we see that don't look or act or come from the places that we come from. And one of the points that Reverend McBride made was really difficult to swallow. We all know a place where we see lots of people waving paddles around and yelling at each other, right? It's on the news every night. It's in our Congress, in our political sphere, in these advertisements that we have, of these people that are often yelling at each other and telling everybody else that they have the authority and they know how to do it right. Well, Reverend McBride found a study in 2019, and he told us the results of a rather shocking survey. It said that of those responding to this survey, the overwhelming majority of the people from either party don't think that this country is on the right path. Many of them think that we're on the brink of absolute disaster. Most of these respondents said that they have actual, uh, absolutely no hope that anything can be turned around. They have no hope that we'll find solutions to the issues that we face, whether it's immigration or climate change, global politics, even the deterioration of democracy. Whatever side these people were on, none of them had any hope for this political process. But it's when the survey questions turn to what a possible solution may be that things start to get terrifying. Of those people responding on this survey and claiming to vote primarily for Republican candidates, more than 15% of them said that this country and our world would be better off if most of the Democrats died. And then Reverend McBride pointed out that when the question is asked of those Democrats, the question is closer to 20% that say that the world would be better off if most of the Republicans just died. Reverend McBride then had several people at this conference stand up. Had about 20% of the room stand up over here. And then had about half of the room stand up over here. And he said, this is what those numbers look like. Sorry to pick on y'all, but these are the people in this section that think that if the right half of this room died, the world would be a better place. And so we had to sit there and we had to think about what we have thought about and what we've said about the other side. We had to wonder whether or not we've ever flirted with the idea that political genocide is the way to go. And it was uncomfortable. The table behind me was standing up right behind me. We were jam-packed in, so it was physically uncomfortable. And the people that were standing behind me were those that represented the ones that wanted half of the room to die. And as I looked across the room, I saw our very own Pastor Janet standing on the other side representing those that the world would be better off without. Sometimes we forget that we're in the same boat. Pastor Janet actually told a story a few weeks ago to our pastors that has been resonating with me since I heard it, and I was just waiting for this scripture uh, text to tell it. Pastor Janet said that for a while she was uh, on vacation, and on this vacation she got to watch hummingbirds every day, and she loved to watch these hummingbirds. If you're not aware, hummingbirds, though small, are mighty. They are aggressive and they are territorial, and they will chase each other around all day. They won't let the other birds eat. They will pick on birds bigger than them, and if you as a human get too close to a hummingbird feeder, they will buzz you. They will let you know that they are there and that this place is theirs. But Pastor Janet said that every day she was astonished. Because every day at the same time, it was like a bell suddenly went off and all those hummingbirds would stop and they would all just go to the feeders and eat in peace. They stopped chasing, they stopped fighting, and they just went and ate a meal together. A generation before Jesus, there were these two rabbis And they've had a major influence on our life of faith. And if you've been here a while, you've heard me talk about them. And if you stay here a while, you're going to hear me talk about them over and over again. So I apologize for that, but they are just amazing people. Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai were absolutely famous in the land of Israel in a generation before Jesus because of their interpretations of the scripture, because of the way that they led their people in their faithful living. You might also know, though, that Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai had vastly different approaches to this life of faith. They were famous, not just for their interpretations, but for their arguments about these interpretations. After the two of them died, their two schools that they founded continued to argue with one another over these interpretations. One of the major things that they argued about was the commandments. The whole of the Torah contains not just the Ten Commandments, but a whole 613 of them. And if you are somebody that tries to take those commandments very seriously, you can imagine that you'd start to get confused. Especially when you realize that in order to keep one commandment, you're going to have to break another one. If you're a shepherd and you're walking along on the Sabbath and a sheep falls into a pit, you have to ask yourself, do I do my job and save the sheep? Or since it's the Sabbath, do I let it sit in the pit? Or maybe even more, imagine you're a priest and you're walking along. And you find a poor man that's beaten and bloody on the side of the road. Do you maintain your purity so that you can do your job and avoid this potentially dead body? Or do you stop and help? These two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, were determined to rank the commandments so that we, if we come into these situations where things are a little bit confusing, would know which of the commandments takes priority. And so Shammai and Hillel and their two schools always agreed on the first most important commandment. The first commandment is always found in Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But the disagreement... Began right after number one. The two schools found the first difference at command number two. Both schools found the second command in the same place. They both found them in this nineteenth chapter of this revolutionary riveting book called Leviticus, folks. It is amazing. <laughs> Shemai believed that the second most important commandment was found at Leviticus 19:2. You shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy. And so this meant, according to the school of Shammai, that the most important commands to keep were the commands that maintained boundaries. They were to separate the infirm, the unclean, the foreigner, the holy, unholy, and the abominations. Hillel, however, believed that the second commandment was found just a few verses later at Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. For the school of Hillel, this meant that the most important commands exemplified love. Feed the hungry, love the immigrant, clothe the naked, serve and preserve this created world. And the story goes that Hillel and Shammai would argue day in and day out. They would wave their hands, they would shout at each other, they'd tell stories, they'd quote scriptures, and when these two old men would get too tired to argue anymore, their disciples picked up the mantle. But every day... A trumpet would sound, and that trumpet meant that it was the time for prayer, and these two rabbis would stop, and their disciples would stop, and they'd all look at each other, and they'd embrace, and they'd walk to the place of prayer, just like a couple of hummingbirds. And so when Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment? I think there's at least a couple of things to note. First, this is a question about everyday life. This is a question about how to steer the boat that we're all on. And second, Jesus responds with Hillel's answer. This means that for Jesus, the command to love transcends all of the other laws. It means that we define the very concept of holiness by the act of loving our neighbor as ourself. And so when Jesus answers this third challenge, and the lawyer walks away astonished once again, the Pharisees start to gather around one more time, and Jesus offers them his own riddle this time. Jesus says, Who do you think, or what do you think, of the Messiah? Whose son is this Messiah? A son of David, they say, which is obviously what they're supposed to say. David is this great king. He's the ancient warlord that led them into an age of prosperity and peace and freedom. It's David that's promised an eternal throne. And so, of course, it would be a son of David that would come and rescue the people from their enemies. But Jesus points out a strange phrase found in a psalm that's attributed to David himself. Why then does King David call this Messiah Lord and Master? David writes, The Lord our God says to my Lord, My Master, sit at my right hand until my enemies are placed beneath your feet. In this ancient world, a father would never call their son or descendant Lord. A king such as David would not call anybody Lord. For David to acknowledge that he himself may serve under somebody else was shocking. And Jesus uses this psalm to say much more than what we find just on the page. This Messiah may be the son of David. And Matthew does go to great lengths to make sure that we know that the Messiah is the son of David. He may be the son of David, but this Messiah is also so much more. David was a great king, but his reign was not a reign of love. He came into his reign through violence and he maintained his reign through murder. In asking this question, Jesus is making clear to the people that God's Messiah is not a warlord. God's Messiah conquers through this most important commandment. God's Messiah conquers through love. And so the enemy of the people... The enemy of the Messiah, they're not other people. The enemies piled up under the Messiah's feet are not broken bodies, but they are the systems and the powers that break bodies. In a world that was haunted by ethnic wars and the pillaging of resources, preferences for political genocide then and now, it's really easy to lose hope. But friends, we have a better story. And so may we respond not with hopelessness. May we steer this boat in the way of Jesus. May we find hope in a God that doesn't just command us to love, but that gives love in abundance. May we love this God. May we love each other. May we love our enemies. May we even love ourselves. And so now, friends, I ask you to please stand again as you're able to join me in a prayer that we do say every Sunday here in this worship service. This prayer is called the Shema, and the reason that we pray it is that these words shape the lifestyle of our community of faith. These words mean something to us. They mean something to who we are and who we know our God to be. We'll say a little bit of in Hebrew, a little bit of in English, and you'll see me raise my pinky as I do. This is a reminder for me that there's enough power and grace in God's little finger to change my heart, my mind, and this entire world. The invitation today while you pray this prayer is to look at the world around you, to really actually look around this room. The presence of God is here in this room. We light the candle to remind ourselves of it, but even more than that, when we look at each other, we are seeing the very image of God. So as you pray this prayer of love for God, this prayer of love for neighbor, I invite you to look at each other, to say these words and to let them mean something to who you are and to who we are. Let's pray together. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen.